Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Open your Bibles up to 1 John. We're continuing our series in 1 John. We're up to chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 17. I'm assuming that most of you are familiar with the idea of bait and switch, that, that there's something that's advertised as one thing, and then when it comes time for you to receive that particular item, it's, it's switched into something else that's different than advertised. Uh, as kids, we used to, to try and play tricks on our friends. Uh, do they still make Wrigley's or Juicy Fruit Gum? Do you guys remember that? It was in the sticks with the metal uh, foil around the outside. We would take that gum and we would eat a stick of gum, but we would very carefully save the wrapper. And we, we would fold it back up and we would put it back in the container with the rest of the gum. And then, you know, like being a good friend, we would offer our friend a, a stick of gum and they would, they would take out that metal wrapper and then suddenly realize that they had experienced a, a bait and switch. In nature, this, this actually happens too. One, one of my favorite ways in which this happens is through this particular type of fish called an anglerfish. This fish has a, almost like a, uh, a fishing line off of its head that dangles bait before the prey. And it lets the prey get very, very close to this part of its actual body, and it thinks it's going to eat food, but instead it itself gets eaten. Well, I think today, in this particular text in 1 Timothy, or excuse me, not 1 Timothy, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, what we're going to see is very much this sense of a bait and switch. That what in fact is happening in this particular text, what is happening in the world around us right now, is that the world is offering us something, the world is offering us ideas and items that appear to be one thing, but in the end, if we indulge in them, they will ultimately end in our demise. Here's the main idea, I think, of what's being conveyed in this passage. This is the thesis for the passage. The devil and the world are constantly calling us to love things, to love ideas more than God. These things of the world will only last temporarily. And loving them more than God puts us in rebellion against God. We must keep watch to make sure that we do not love the things of this world, but instead cling to Christ, our only true hope and salvation. It's with this in mind, I want to invite you to stand for just a moment as we, re we read the text. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John 2, starting in verse 15, says this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, 
But whoever does the will of God, brothers and sisters, abides forever. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. What we're going to see in this particular text is a command to do not. This is a forbidden action, something that's commanded that we're not to do. We do not love the world. Now, what I want you to see in this first verse, though, is that John goes to some length to make a distinction between the world and the things in the world. The reason that I think this is so important for us to see this distinction is that there's this idea that John is communicating that's called the world, and let me suggest to you what John means by that is a system organized in rebellion against God. Let me say that to you again. What John means here by the world is a system that is organized in rebellion against God. Now, in today's day and age, what we see are some people who knowingly and some who unknowingly participate in this particular system. There are some people who think that they're doing the right thing by living according to the world system because they've been duped by the world system, when in fact, what they are actually doing is living in rebellion against God. There are those, the devil and his minions, those who worship the devil and follow him, who are actively working at this point to keep the world organized in such a way that it is in direct rebellion against God. But there are also people who are seeking their own desires and they play into this world system thinking the world has the best to offer them when in fact what they're actually doing is rebelling against God. But who I think this text is primarily to today, this text is primarily written to Christians who have adopted worldly thinking. This letter of 1 John, if we remember, is is written to the church. It's written to believers. It's written to those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. And the command in this particular passage is to not love the world, that it's issued to you and I, those who would claim to love Jesus Christ. And this is, un, this is like one of the great tasks of this particular passage in, in my mind. One of the great weights that I have borne this week is how to encourage you, Christian, to take a real examination of your life to see if there is any way in which you have adopted worldly thinking, adopted any part of the world system into your own life knowingly and potentially even unknowingly. This text cries out to us today, brothers and sisters, to do a thorough examination of our lives to see where we have been influenced or co-opted by the world to be actively in rebellion against God. But there's a second category in this particular passage. He says, do not love the things of, or do not love the world, don't love the world's system, But he says, also, do not love the things in the world. So there's two temptations that we're battling here. The temptation to love the worldly system and the temptation to love physical, temporal things. 
Now, the problem is the world system of seeing things has co-opted God's gifts to us, the things in the physical world, to buy into the system of how they see how things operate. So there's a system of thinking that is worldly, that is demonic, that has also used God's gifts to encourage us to think wrongly about who God is and what he has done. Yes, the world itself is under the curse of sin, but there are many good things that are physical things in this world that we're meant to enjoy. Last night, we had some, of course, I'm going to tell a food story about things you should enjoy. You should know this by now. Last night, we had some ministry friends over to our house, and my family made the perfect meal. Uh, It was a co-opted effort by everyone in our family. We had roasted chicken. We had venison beef and noodles. We had mashed potatoes. We had biscuits that were made from Kim's great-great-grandmother's recipe. You know, like recipes, once, once you get past great-great, they get better once you get on past that. We had apple uh, crumb cake with ice cream for dessert. Now, all those things are good gifts from God. Amen? I'm sorry you weren't there to enjoy it with us. But these are physical things in the world given to us by God to enjoy. The problem is, if I desire that food more than I desire God. But again, here's the great dilemma and difficulty of this sermon. The great difficulty and dilemma of this sermon is for me to get you to consider where and how you have adopted worldly thinking. Because the the danger is that we would run into passages that talk about how it's so much easier to see the speck in our brother's eye when we have a log sticking out of our own eye. And I'm concerned that this is the danger here, that we would be so much more apt to see where other people have adopted worldly thinking without considering it in our own lives. Now, listen to the particular words that I've, I've said here, and look at the particular words of the text. Notice the text doesn't say, if you have loved the things of the world. It says, do not love the things of the world. What is assumed inside of that? What's assumed, what's presupposed inside of that is that every one of us have at least one place in our life where we have adopted worldly thinking that has not come from God. Every one of us. And our initial reaction might be to think, not me. I'm just out here living my life for Jesus. But I want to challenge you already, before we even get into the specifics of the text, we must take time to stop and think this week and give serious consideration to where and how we may be letting the system of the world affect and effect our lives. Because we need to identify two things. One, Where have I allowed the world to consistently speak into my life? Through television, through coworkers, where is it happening consistently? And how has it affected my life? How is my life different than what the Word of God has commanded me to? Now, in this particular text, John gives us some very helpful definitions. 
he gives us three things that define the person who is loyal to the world. He says there are three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. A person who is loyal to the world and the world's system of thinking will exhibit these three things, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. They may not exhibit all three of them at the same time or in equal measure, but they will exhibit one of these three items. Now, this word desire, maybe a more profound way for us to think about it is the word lust or passion, the lust or passion of the flesh. I think it's necessary for us to think about it in this particular way in terms of the desires of our flesh. And I think the point that John is making here is that we are geared in our flesh to have certain types of desires. Men are geared in one particular way, typically, and women are geared in one way, typically. Especially when it comes to uh, relationships of the physical or emotional nature. And what this is talking about is the unbiblical fulfillment of these lusts of the flesh. But let me again try to stress to you what's, what's happening in this particular passage. One of the most clear passages I, I think helps us understand this particular context of what's happening here is in James chapter 1 in verse 14. Each person, here's what it says, James 1:14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, if you're a fisher person, fisherman or fisherwoman, this should hit you especially. Because the idea here is a lure that is cast, that then tempts the fish, but the fish that isn't interested in that particular type of bait isn't going to be tempted by it. It's the desire of the fish that tempts it to the particular lure. Does that make sense to you? So you and I could be in a scenario where the world system would tempt us with the same thing, but if my desire is different than your desire, you're going to be tempted and drawn away from it where I might be able to resist it. But the problem is, here's the problem with this particular text, or this particular verse in James 1.14. Once you take the bait, it's very hard to determine the consequences. Just like a fish has very little means by which to save itself from the fisherman's hook, once we take the bait of the temptation, it's very hard to get away from that particular temptation. This is why it's so important for us to recognize what our desires are and what they trend towards. If I know what I'm tempted, where my desires lean towards, I can resist the bait before it ever makes it into my mouth. But, but here's, here's the other part of this that, that I, I hope I can communicate to you clearly. In this particular context, there's, there's the flesh, desires of the flesh, and desires of the eyes. What John is painting for us here is that the flesh is the agent of the desires that come from the heart. 
Now, this in two senses should shock you, but also at the same time give you incredible hope. Because what this means is that when someone gives into temptation, when they give into sin, when they live worldly, what we're seeing is what is actually in their heart. We're seeing what they actually are. We're seeing the desires of their heart expressed in their flesh. That should terrify you to the core. Because the person who gets caught in sin that says, I didn't mean to do that, is not being honest about what's actually happening in their heart. But here's where the incredible hope comes from. If it is the heart that uses the flesh or the eyes as the agent of the desires, and the God that we worship is the God who changes hearts, then every one of us has the hope and joy of knowing that you can resist sin because the God of the heart change is the God that we worship. That whatever sin that you're tempted by, you are not automatically predisposed because of your flesh to give in to that temptation every time, but in fact, the God who changes heart can change your heart to the point where your flesh is no longer the agent by which you give in to temptation. That means that God can change you at the very core of who you are. But this is why what we see later to be true, this is why the love of the Father can't be in the one who lives a life that is defined by these types of desires. Because a person who is defined by living out the desires of their flesh and has no variation of that whatsoever, it means their heart hasn't been changed and their, evident, their life evidences the lack of change in their heart. You see, they love the things of the world and not the God that created the world. Desires of the flesh, he also says the desires of the eyes. Again, it's important to remember that, that the eye is the agent of the desires that comes from the heart. Here's, here's the problem with this. Evil things often appear beautiful to the eyes. We see this to some degree happen in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. If you remember, the devil has come to tempt Adam and Eve, and he reveals to her the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he tells her lies about the, truth, or about the tree and about God. And in being deceived about the nature of what's happening here, here's what the text tells us about Eve in Genesis 3, chapter 6. He says, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, she saw that the tree was good for food, which just think about this in this particular context. What, were, what kinds of food were they lacking in the garden? I mean, maybe there wasn't a bacon tree there, but I don't think they were lacking anything. They live in a perfect environment in which fruits and vegetables are available to them at every point. It's just the natural production of a world in which God created for them. But all of a sudden, this tree that she is told is not good for her to eat appears good to her eyes for food. It says, in fact, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. 
So she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. In this moment, we know that Eve is deceived by the, by the devil's lies, by the system by which the devil organized to be in rebellion against God. And as she believes the lies of the system of the devil, she starts to see things that God has said were not good for her to have as things that should be desired and should be had, when in fact what we're going to find in this particular text in Genesis 3 and in 1 John chapter 2, the things of the world lead to death not to prosperity and blessing. But again, this is why the love of the Father can't be in the one who lives a life that is defined by these types of desires. The love of the things of the world, or they love the things of the world and not the God who created the world. But this, this desires of the eyes, you can almost think about it as envy. And, and maybe some of us have, have wrestled with this. Um, my next door neighbor got a brand new 2023, for the purpose of the story, Dodge Ram. Have, have you guys ever seen the truck that I drive? It's a 2004 Dodge Ram that every time I get it in and I go to start it, I'm amazed that it starts and the wheels don't fall off. His is jet black too. It's got nice rims, lift kit. I've not really looked at it long, though, I promise. <laughs> but every time I drive my truck past his, my truck looks worse and worse. This is the danger of the desire of the eyes. It's very easy to start believing that God's provision for you isn't good enough when you compare it to what your neighbor has. What happens in the midst of that is that a command that God has given us, which is the command to be industrious. Remember this from Genesis 1.28. Genesis says that God blessed Adam and Eve, and God said to Adam in particular, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It is actually commanded by God that we as his children would be industrious, that, that we would work and we would earn a living and that we would provide for those that God has entrusted in our care and that we would share the wealth that, that we would make. But when the desire for things must be satisfied at any cost, it has moved from industriousness to the lust of the eyes. This is a desire for more things. But then there's this final category, desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. The pride of life could be defined as pure arrogance. This is a person who brags oftentimes falsely to impress others. Uh, any, any Napoleon Dynamite fans in the house? All right. There is a character in the movie Napoleon Dynamite that is named Uncle Rico. And Uncle Rico thinks he can throw a football over a mountain and that he should have been in the NFL and all of these things that he says that he has. But the truth is Uncle Rico lives in a van and he mooches off everyone else 
He eats their steaks and their quesadillas. He has nothing to brag about. But everyone knows someone in their life that operates this way. And I've said it to you (laughs) this way before, and I mean it in jest, but I'm also being a little serious. If you don't know anybody in your life that acts like this, it might be you. They have absolutely dedicated their life to amassing material possessions or achieving a certain status in their life. Here's why this is the pinnacle of arrogance. What does anyone have that God didn't allow them to have? Anything? And the things that we do have, who do they belong to? They belong to God. And so the person who says, look at this kingdom that I built. Look at this wealth that I amassed. Look at this status that I achieved is essentially saying, I don't need God. I earned this on my own. Friends, this is one of the defining traits of a person who loves the world. Now, here's where this is so hard. This is the point in which we've got to make the transition from that is someone out there to this is me who has potentially adopted the thinking of the world. I might at this moment be thinking about how to sinfully fulfill the desires of the flesh, how to sinfully fulfill the desires of my eyes, or I might be attempting to build a little K kingdom inside of God's big K kingdom. And this is a hard transition because we have to think diligently about what's happening in our hearts because what's happening in our hearts is evidence in our behavior. And how we've lived will point a a big red arrow straight to what's happening in here. In this particular text, not only does he give us three things that define the person who is loyal to the world, but he also gives us one thing that defines the person who is loyal to God. This is one of the things that I love that Scripture does. It takes big ideas and it condenses them down into small, little, palatable pieces Look what it says in the text. At the end of verse 17, it says the person who is loyal to God is the one who does the will of God. This is a defining trait of their life. It doesn't mean that at times they don't struggle with sin. It doesn't mean at times they don't fall into this category of someone who struggles with believing the worldly system. But the overall arching theme of their life is a person who does the will of God. Now, let me just suggest to you that in this day and age, many people want to define the will of God in the way in which they want to define the will of God. And what they end up doing is defining the will of God in the same way that the world says that we're supposed to value the things around us. They have actually bent what the will of God says in his word to fulfilling what the devil has said is right in the worldly system. This is where we've got to be very careful. 
So how do we avoid not thinking that the will of God is the system of the devil in the world? How do we do that? Well, let's just look at 1 John and see what he has said are the main categories of doing the will of God up to this point. What are they? Doing the will of God is to have fellowship with God. How do we have fellowship with God? We walk in the light by practicing the truth. Doing the will of God, according to 1 John, up to this point, is knowing the truth and living the truth. And when we don't do the truth, when we don't walk in the light, we confess our sins and we allow God to cleanse us. We know the truth by knowing God's commands from his word and obeying them. So there, there's two categories of the will of God that, God's given, or that John's given us here. Fellowship with God and fellowship with other Christians. We do the will of God first by fellowshipping with God, by walking in the light and practicing the truth, knowing the truth and living the truth. And when we don't live the truth, we confess and we're actively cleansed by God. Up to this point, that's doing the will of God. But then he relates it to fellowship with other Christians. And he makes that one super simple for us. Fellowship with other Christians consists of gathering with other Christians and then loving them. Fellowship with other Christians consists of gathering with other Christians and then loving them. This is the will of God in 1 John so far. So to know and do the will of God, to be loyal to God, means you fellowship with God by knowing and practicing the truth, and then you fellowship with other believers by meeting with them and loving them. I love how simple the scriptures are because we were talking about this in the deductive class today. Hasn't the world made things so overly complicated that it's hard to know up from down anymore? And then the Bible just goes, hey, listen, uh, it's really simple. Love God, know his word, do it, and then get together with some other Christians and love them. I mean, I, I'm not confused by that. It's pretty simple. But, but here's the truth. Here's why this line that we're cutting is, is so important. Up to this point, John is giving us a filter by which to run through if I am and if others are true Christians or not. Because there are lots of people who like the idea of fellowshipping with God, and there are lots of people who like the idea of fellowshipping with other Christians, but at the end of the day, they don't know the truth and they don't walk in it. And so we, we start with ourselves by examining whether or not we've adopted the thinking of the world, and then by extension, when we gather with other believers, one of the ways that we love each other is that we call each other to repentance when we sin. And we together are restored back to fellowship. Together we're cleansed by God. Because here, here's the bottom line. The thing that hurts this fellowship with God and fellowship with others is sin. 
The thing that hurts fellowship with God and fellowship with others is sin. And so John is very clearly laying out for us what it looks like to walk in the light versus walk in the darkness. Walk in the truth, walk in sin. Love the world, love God. So that when we gather together, when we have relationship with each other, it should be normal for us to encourage each other to walk in the light. And then when we don't, to encourage each other to confess and be cleansed. Because at the end of the day, you can't do this without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. Because we, we would all say we love each other, but sometimes we don't like each other because we're not easy to like all the time. Amen? We need the power of the Holy Spirit to do what God has called us here to do. It's insanely simple and yet cosmically profound and complex. That the God of the universe would love us so much that he would desire fellowship with us and then empower us to have fellowship with each other by seeing clearly what the world is, rejecting it, and seeing clearly who God is and loving it. And he ends this particular passage with a dire warning. Listen to these words. The person who is loyal to the world and the person who is loyal to God have drastically different fates. Being loyal to the world means living in the desires mentioned above. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life that consistently marks your life, that means that you're loyal to the world. But look what it says in verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. That should sound really familiar to you. Do you remember this from verse 8? The darkness is passing away. Brothers and sisters, the world, the devil, and his system, they do not win. And anyone who thinks and lives and acts in the world system will perish along with the devil and the world and its system of thinking. And for those of us who are true believers, this should cause us to rejoice to go, brothers and sisters, there is a day coming when the darkness will have no more power. The world will not be able to influence anyone. And you and I will be free to worship God. But friend, if you do not have fellowship with God, if you have not confessed that you are a sinner and turned from your sin and received the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, your physical death will end in a spiritual death. And spiritual death is separation from God and eternal punishment forever. These desires that you believe, that I believe, oftentimes are so satisfying, cannot satisfy us for more than just a few fleeting moments. And those desires and the physical world itself will pass away and give way to the new heaven and the new earth, where we'll dwell with Christ for all eternity. That's what this text says. The one who does the will of God, look at verse 17 of 1 John chapter 2. What does it say about us, brothers and sisters? 
Whoever does the will of God, whoever is empowered by the Holy Spirit to be obedient to the Scriptures, what will God do for him? They will abide forever. Now, this is a beautiful word. This is a beautiful phrase. Because there was a time in the history of the world in which man, men and women, and God dwelled in perfect harmony until sin entered into the world. But this passage reminds us that it is God's plan to restore the entire world back into perfect harmony with Him and allow us to abide with God in heaven forever in perfect, sinless states. We were making some wonderful connections in our class this morning because our abiding forever is directly tied to the fact that Jesus Christ abides forever. The world and its system tried to crucify Jesus Christ on the cross and put to death God. But here in just a few months, what are we going to celebrate, brothers and sisters? The grave could not contain him. Death had no power over him, and he now seats at the, he's seated at the right hand of the Father where he will abide forever. And this particular passage reminds us that his abiding forever, his life that is eternal forever, is guaranteed to us through him. And what we should do in response to understanding that particular truth from God's word is be loyal to God by doing his will. Fellowship with God through obedience to his commands and fellowship with others, all defined by love. Here's another truth you need to discern from this particular passage. There is only one person who was completely loyal to God by doing his will from birth to death. There's only one. There is only one who has never given in to the world system and was able to live a perfect life and die a perfect death. That is Jesus Christ. You and I, friends, you and I, brothers and sisters, we're not perfect, and we never could be. But Jesus Christ, on our behalf, faced the things of the world, the temptations of the world, the desires of the world, and he did it without sin. And so now, in his resurrection and in his indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he gives you and I the ability to resist the ways of the world and to live according to the will of God. Brothers and sisters, we must meditate and soak in this truth. I'm going to get on a a soapbox for a minute. One of the ways that the world has co-opted Christianity at this point is to make you believe that you have to feel something all the time that's positive about God and yourself. That is a worldly system of thinking. This particular text says, don't feel your way to God, know your way to God. You can know who God is through his word, and he will reveal himself to you by the power of his Holy Spirit. To think that you have to feel right about living for God in his glory, that is not from God, that is from the devil. Know, brothers and sisters, know the God of the Bible. Live for the God of the Bible, and the feelings will come later. 
even if you don't feel what you think you're supposed to feel, when we see Jesus Christ face to face, we'll have all the feelings we'll ever need. Know the God of the Bible. Trust the God of the Bible. Live for the God of the Bible, and you will abide forever. Let's pray. Lord, we see the world tempting us. We see our hearts desiring to want to believe what the world has to offer is good and right. And yet your word and your spirit testify to the truth that what you have to offer, which is yourself, is way better than anything the world could ever offer us. We know that the devil and the world are going to try to tempt us away from you. We know that the world system is built in such a way that it desires to lure us away. But the devil doesn't know our hearts. He is a good student of humanity, but he doesn't know our hearts and minds. Only you do. He doesn't have control over our hearts and our minds. Only you give us the power to do what's according to your word and to resist sin. And so today we say, we trust you. We trust your word that what you have said is good. And what you have commanded is right. Lord, I pray that today you would help us to take a serious look into our hearts and minds and where we find any way in which we've been deceived by the world and we've lived sinfully, that we would fall on our knees and repent and receive the cleansing that only you can give. Lord, I, I ask that today, if there is anyone listening online or anyone that is here today that does not know you, that still is loyal to the world, that still loves the things of the world, that today you would bring to bear the weight of their sin upon their heart, and yet at the same time shine the glorious good news of the gospel that even though we're all we're all dead in our trespasses and sin, that through Jesus Christ you have saved us, not just in this life, but eternally. And that they would cry out to you and receive the forgiveness that only you can give. Lord, as a church, as your church gathered here at Crossbridge, help us to be a beacon of light and hope that God is not dead. He is very alive. And he is empowering his children to live contrary to the world by loving each other and loving those around us and striving to know his word and striving to minister to each other. Lord, help us to be known for these things so that you might be glorified in us. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.